Outside the Tank is not affiliated with Shark Tank. Welcome to Outside the Tank, the first podcast in the world that interviews the entrepreneurs featured on Shark Tank. We get the inside scoop on how they got there, what lessons they learned, their biggest regrets, what didn't air on TV, what has happened to them since, and so much more. Prepare to be informed, inspired, and entertained. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom. I'm Joe. You sure are. (laughs) I kind of said that like it was a question. I'm Joe. (laughs) I question you all the time. I know. All right, so... David from Detrapel. But before we get to that, we have not mentioned this in, in a few weeks. Uh, we have a new book, Entrepreneurial Landmines. It's all the mistakes, um, dumb decisions, uh, blunders, <laughs> errors, unforced errors that early stage entrepreneurs make. And if that book sounds interesting to you, um, we're happy to send you a free copy. But if you like listening to us and you're not sick of us yet, you can actually go into the uh, feed from this podcast and the book will be in there. So we posted it uh, towards the end of July. And so if you scroll back a few episodes, you can listen to the entire book. It's about three hours, 20 minutes. You can bump the speed up a little bit and finish it closer to two, two and a half. But it's just 30 big ugly mistakes that entrepreneurs make as they're growing and scaling their business. I've had a lot of interesting comments so far. It's only been out for a short period of time, but I've had some people say, hey, I've read it and I've made about half those mistakes and I don't want to make the other half. So it's a, it's an easy read. It's a fun read and it's real world. We've been doing this work with Growth10, our primary company. We're co-founders of Growth10. We bring uh, entrepreneurs together to talk about their issues or challenges or opportunities, their their pending decisions. And and really, a lot of the information in the book is gleaned from those discussions. Yep. So, so great book. Yeah. Go get it for free. It's in this feed, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. We're really proud of it, and you know we've received some really good feedback. So, David, Detrapel, Season 9, Episode 15, January 7th, 2018. Um, and asking 200000 for 20%, uh, so million-dollar valuation on the company. And Detrapel is a liquid repellent spray, uh, carpet and furniture, um, three hundred to 350000 of sales year-to-date when it aired, of course. Um, a lot of B2B stuff, yep. uh, people that clean carpets and furniture, right? And, and, and want to put a repellent spray on there. Uh, also at a travel size, he was selling on the website for $12.99. It was about $1.20 to make. So what happened with the deal? Well, uh, Robert thought it was too good to be true. He had huge margins uh, that we noted. And Robert was uh, actually four out of the five sharks made an offer. Barb was the only person that did not make an offer. And uh, Robert just fell in love with him. Uh, But eventually, he got Mark Cuban and Lori. They felt he needed branding and marketing. So they settled on a deal, $200,000 for 25%. All right. So almost what he asked. 
Um, let's get into our interview with David. Great entrepreneur, some really cool lessons, and uh, looking forward to it. All right, and we'll see you afterwards for the post game. All right, we're here with David of Detrapel, Season 9, Episode 15, way, way, way back in January of 2018. So <laughs> probably have a lot to cover, but let, let's start at the beginning. Um, where did you come up with this particular idea? That's a good question. The idea originally stemmed from when I was a freshman in high school, I wanted to protect my sneakers. I uh, was into Jordans at the time and um, got my first two pairs from my from some money that I had, uh, gift money that I had from my grandparents. And so I wanted to keep them protected and looking the same way that they were as the day I bought them. Uh, but I didn't know anything about chemistry. So initially I started a different business, which did well. And I was able to exit out of uh, during the end of my freshman year of high school. So, and that uh, was, so that was cleaning because you, you covered this a little bit on the pitch, but that was cleaning. Well, you tell us, but you were cleaning shoes for other people. I, I want to know exactly what you were doing in that business and then how you had an exit from it so quickly. Because I think that's a really interesting story. And you were a freshman in high school at the time. Yeah, timing is, uh, timing is key. When I was, uh, so yeah, the business was called Lick Your Soul. We were cleaning, conditioning, and repairing shoes for local university sports teams. That was the primary business. And then from there, uh, obviously, I, I got into the sneakerhead market and tried cleaning regular people's shoes as well. And primarily, the, you know, the business was doing well from the cleaning side, but the conditioning service, which was supposed to be, at the time, a competitor of Detrapel's product, uh, was not doing well, but I thought that was the only scalable part of the business. So I was looking to get out. And there was a guy who I, a friend actually, who I knew, uh, who was much older than me at the time. He was a, he was a Temple University graduate student. He was already graduated from there. Uh, and he ended up introducing me to the management uh, people at, at some of these sports teams. And so that's how it started. I, that's how I got involved with the school sports teams. And eventually the individual, uh, my friend, when I was getting ready to get out of the business, he had offered to potentially buy me out and offer me some royalties. And so I uh, kind of took it. It was, it was no brainer for me. Uh, he uh, ended up moving out to the West Coast and uh, he did well for himself, but I think he transi transitioned out of the business as well. But for me, it was kind of a no brainer because I was looking to come up with a more scalable product or service. And that was this conditioning service at the time that I thought of. Um, and I was looking for competitive products, but I couldn't really find anything. So I turned my attention to researching into that. And it just made sense because he could tell my, my business, my focus was moving away from the business and I was trying to get into the next step. And so to me, that, that was a perfect opportunity to sell the company. Uh, David, if someone didn't watch the uh, episode, you mentioned that you sold that business, I think for $150,000. I'm just curious. It's such a great accomplishment for someone who was a freshman in high school. How did it feel and how did it change your, your whole mindset or life at the time? Yeah, for me, I, uh, it was particularly impactful because I was very young. I was 14 or 15 years old at the time. Um, 15, <laughs> that time that I sold it. Um, but in particular, I come from a very low-income background. Like my parents are both immigrants. And for me... Uh, growing up, I, you know, I struggled or, or my parents struggled and I witnessed that. And so I uh, always had this fire, this entrepreneurial drive from an early age. And so when I made my first 
you know, real money in total over the course of the few years of royalties and everything together, it came out to be 150 grand from the business. And at the time it wasn't necessarily that on day one, but it was a nice portion of that. Um, and you know, that was a ton of money for me, especially for a kid who didn't come from money, didn't know anything about money. Uh, it was way too much money than I knew what to do with. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately I had a couple of very strict parents who, uh, pretty much told me to put it away and, and not spend it. And obviously I, <laughs> it's funny, I got this, you know, to some degree, perhaps this, uh, you know, I have an excuse now, but to some degree it got to my head, you know, I was a, a freshman in high school and certainly felt like I was on top of the world. And uh, I'm glad I got this out of my system early on, but I, you know, had a little bit of an ego at the time. Um, and so, you know, I spent some money here and there, bought a bunch of the, you know, traditional crap that most people would, you know, waste money on. I got all the name brand stuff. And then I just realized I didn't care for any of that stuff. And, and I, I really cared to um, make a much bigger impact. And so that's the transition to Detropel where I, I realized that this could be the billion dollar idea potentially. And what I pitched on the show, which I'm sure we'll get into, is very different than what the business does and how it operates today. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. And then I want to know all about that journey along the way. Uh, how did you end up on Shark Tank and how did you feel that experience went? Yeah, it's a good story. Uh, when, I, when I was in high school, and the whole predecessor to how I started the business was I, w I went to one of the best schools in the country. It's a public school, but it's a magnet school that you have to get into in Philadelphia. And I got into the middle school there and the middle school is very competitive, uh, but you had to reapply to the high school to get in. And about 60% of the kids were rejected from the middle school. So essentially it, it, was, it was very cutthroat. And when you have a hundred kids per grade for a public school that in, in the middle of the city of Philadelphia, where there's probably over a million students, uh, it gets quite competitive. So when I was applying to the high school, I was very nervous about not getting in, but eventually I did get in and I realized that, oh, wow, if I was this nervous about a high school, how's it going to be when I'm applying to colleges? And so I did like 12 different clubs, organizations, was an athlete etc. But I, um, you know, I kind of wanted to do something outside the box. And there was this youth entrepreneurship program that was advertised um, outside of the school that I got involved with. And it was like, essentially a mentorship program for students that were looking to, as they call it, start something real. That was their tagline. And so I joined that program. I was the youngest person. I was the only one that was not a senior. And uh, I took it the most serious for sure. I was the only one that came out with it with a actual revenue generating business. Uh, and, and I kept in that program with the other businesses I started running in high school uh, for close to three years. So I, I took it you know, pretty significant because we got new mentors in and every single week out of the two to three classes that we had per week. And I followed up with every single person. To me, you know, this was the best exposure that I could have had. And so through that program, we were in an office uh, under first round capital, which is one of the largest VC firms in the US. And one of the partners had come up with a or came out with a video talking about how to get a hold of the busiest people that you know or getting essentially the art of the email uh, his name is chris fralick he's a partner at first round capital the article was featured on forbes and i read it i watched the video i watched him talk about it and essentially it laid out 10 steps on pretty much how to write the perfect email to get a hold of the busiest ceos that you could ever think of and so i wanted to prove that theory out i wanted to make sure that i you know interpreted the video correctly so i watched it i emailed him he responded I said, all right, let me go to the founder of First Round Capital, who I was kind of connected with, but um, 
sent it to him. He responded, bought some product. And then I realized, all right, well, let's go big or go home. This is about two or three months after, maybe four months after officially launching Detrapel um, in 2013 that I, I cold emailed Mark Cuban. I found his email and I, and I cold emailed him and he responded to me. And in my follow-up email, I, I told him I was interested in Shark Tank. So he introduced me to the casting producer who then followed my story for about four years or so until we were finally ready to apply. And when I was ready to apply in 2017, we finally submitted the application and uh, it went well, super nerve wracking, crazy experience, but uh, yeah, we, we got onto the show. That was a really a long path. You were really at it for uh, more than four years. That's fantastic. Yeah, I wasn't ready to go on and I knew that. And by the time that I was ready, I, you know, I wanted to pull the trigger 80% of the way there, not necessarily 100% of the way there. How did you feel about the pitch, how it went, how it ended up? Overall, the pitch went well. Uh, it was a little quick, uh, quicker than I expected. I, I think I got one of the quickest deals or quicker deals in history. Um, I know one of my mentors, actually, who was on there for season six, does have, I believe, the quickest deal in history. Um, but I was pretty close. I, I think I closed the deal within like 36 minutes or something like that. Wow. It was pretty short, whereas the average pitch is over 90 minutes. Yeah. And so uh, it, it was fairly straightforward. I mean, they, they liked the product. Uh, there was interest in, in the story and everything behind it. And I think for us, it was kind of a simple, simple value add proposition, right? Like protect the stuff that you love and maintain maintain the things that you don't want to don't want to ruin yeah the demonstrations uh pretty awesome when you and uh your cohort walk in with white shirts and you were uh spraying ketchup and mustard on his shirt and uh, everyone loved you I, I think this was one of those rare shark tank appearances where all five sharks loved you and four of the five offered and the only one that didn't offer was barbara because she thought um, Lori and Mark would have been great partners uh, for you, uh, but everyone loved you. Were you, when you went into the pitch, were you confident that that would be, because you have a very well-baked business, a fantastic product, were you confident that that was going to be the result, or uh, did you have lower expectations than that? No, I mean, I, I certainly uh, didn't expect it to happen the way that it did initially my goal was to go in and, and, and get Mark or Lori. Uh, ideally I'd have both. <laughs> so uh, that was my thinking going in. I just didn't expect it to, to work out the way that it did and to get the response that I did. I thought I would have been grilled a little bit more on, on certain questions. Um, but I was prepared for all of it and, and it didn't necessarily go that route, but I'm kind of happy it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens, you know, right after you air and and what's been happening since because obviously a lot's changed yeah i mean right after we aired it was uh, a pretty significant moment in the company's history it was to that day uh, the largest amount of sales and uh, attention that we've ever had at, at the time um and what it did for us specifically was that it legitimized the company in the sense that we were finally able to just hire the right people behind us so, you know, initially I'm, I'm a solo founder and, you know, I was run, by the time that we had aired, the company consisted of like five college students. <laughs> so, um, or, or, you know, maybe some graduate students. So it was, it was fairly young. And at the time we had just brought in the packaging in-house. So right when we aired, we were doing the packaging ourselves, but uh, we were still outsourcing the formulation and stuff like that. Um, but 
you know, as time progressed, we, we amassed enough capital to, to fund not only legitimate hires and, and now our 17 person full-time team is, is, you know, I, I think besides my one colleague who, uh, was a friend of mine and was in undergrad with me, uh, we by far are the youngest people in the company. The average age has gone from like maybe 25 or, or like 35 to, to, or maybe 30 to closer to in the fifties, in the mid fifties. So it's, it's good though. I mean, what we've done is we've been able to create a real experienced team uh, that can not only help drive the innovation, but also drive real life success in the company. And so it's been a traumatic, uh, not traumatic, a tremendous experience uh, having um, the ability to really just hire the right people. And then further, the, the, the key catalyst to Shark Tank and the aftermath was the fact that one, we hired the right team members. We got, you know, a, a full-time CFO or, or, you know, someone to manage the books. Our, my COO was the next major hire that we had uh, who had his own success in prior exits. So that just legitimized the company. And then further, what we did was we made an effort to completely bring in as much as possible in-house. So today, we do almost every single thing that you can think of for the company in-house, from the R&D to the packaging, to the, to the production, fulfillment, shipping. Literally almost nothing is outsourced besides the printing of our labels and the printing on our Kurgit boxes, which is done with local companies here in Massachusetts as well. So we're fully, fully, almost vertically integrated. What can you share with us about the formation of your current team, what you learned maybe uh, what lessons are there, what errors you made in putting, because it sounds like you're really, really proud of the team you put together. What, what can you share yeah. with other entrepreneurs about building out that team? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's a lot of emphasis always on co-founding companies, um, which has its benefits for sure. I never was a co-founder with this particular business, so I can't speak to, to the benefits of having a co-founder, but you know, I, I know what it's like to have a real team and have people behind you. And when I was having these college students, for example, with me, the issue is that, you know, it was all equity-based potential contracts. There, there weren't any people that are actually getting paid or people who had experience. So there are pros and cons to that. The pro is that it's cheap labor and they're ambitious. The con is that they have no experience. And for me, you hit the nail on the head. I think the proudest moment I have of the company is is the team that we built uh, only because it's it's just... It's a little bit different when you have someone, for example, uh, who's 50 or, or in, you know, in their 60s who have a full-blown family, live in a completely different state and come to relocate to work for us because they're excited about what you know, the prospects of the company could be. And so that's, you know, it's very humbling for me. And I think that's a, it's, a, it's a key component to what we do here. But to answer your question directly about what lessons I've learned, uh, I, I don't think there's any lesson I haven't learned. <laughs> Managing people is definitely the most rewarding but also the hardest part of the business for sure what's changed about your management or leadership style that you're uh most aware of uh i'm much much more empathetic than i used to be i i took it upon myself to actually learn what empathy was all about and um after studying a bunch of it you know reading a bunch of books about it um following some great leaders in the space that was kind of the i think the key thing that that changed my management style. I went from more of an authoritative leader to more of a collaborative leader. Um, and I think, at least that's how I would describe myself. I hope my team shares the same sentiment, but, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I think that one of the things that changed for me personally was that I, I became a lot more hands-off and let 
the team that I had built who I trusted to run the business and their specific facets run the business. And that was something I wasn't able to do, whether it was because I was more hands-on or, or too focused on doing everything. Or maybe it was the fact that, again, I recognized the fact that I didn't have experience in the company, not only myself, but with my coworkers at the time when I was in college. So perhaps it was a combination of the, of the two. And now, you know, now that we have that experience, I'm more than happy to go hands off and let the R&D department focus on their things, operations focus on their things. You know, obviously I'm still involved, but it's not, I'm not in the weeds necessarily having to hold hands or do anything like that. So shifting from, you know, one style of leadership to something that's drastically different, was there an issue or a situation that caused you to make that shift? I mean, what, what really triggered you to change your style and, and dig into learning how to do so? Um, there are a couple of key moments. I think the first main moment that I, I can, you know, specifically point to was reading Delivering Happiness, yeah, uh, the Sappos book yeah. by Tony Shea. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that book really opened my eyes to what it meant to have a, a culture-driven company. And I cared about that because I really did treat, like even, even though I might have been a hard ass at work, I treated my employees or my coworkers like family. And so, you know, that was important to me. The, the, the other thing that I can point to is the fact that I, I mean, I lost a lot of people, right? Like I had a bunch of people that were similar, similarly aged to me at the time um, who, again, maybe were not fit to run the company or, or be part of the company at the time, but nonetheless, they left or I had to let them go. And all those experiences together made me realize that one, it's either me or it's them or the combination of the two. And, and I focused to, to control what I could control, which was me. And that's kind of when I started realizing that uh, I wasn't necessarily a problem or anything, but, but, you know, there were different ways to approach things. And as I started to hire more experienced people, I could see how their reactions were to certain leadership styles. And I, I just got to know my, my staff and know what they, what they like and don't like. How do you deal with managing and, and maybe managing the people that manage people twice your age? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> that's kind of the, uh, the whole crux of this whole you know, situation is that, you know, that's what makes me so proud is that, you know, I, I don't know why I was able to convince some former seasoned exec who's, you know, close to 50 has four boys and, whatnot to, to join me <laughs> and, and take a pay cut on top of that, a massive one. Um, and similarly to, to my R&D staff who relocated out of Ohio for the company just recently. Um, you know, I, I don't know what it, what it is that they uh, see in me or, or in the company, but I'm sure as hell glad that they do. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's humbling. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think we're all, we've, we've demonstrated the culture that we want to just we want to make the company as big as possible because it's in everyone's benefit and achieve our goals. And so I think everyone's just driven towards that common goal. So you walked onto Shark Tank with a liquid repellent spray, one product, one skew. <laughs> um, what's changed? What does this company look like now <laughs> over three years later? Yeah, at the time we were a single product company. Now we're a full-blown chemical manufacturer, specifically in the specialty coatings and protective coatings industry. What that means is we create all types of products that protect what you love. That's what our mantra is. Um, and that can mean anything. I mean, we have anything from surface cleaners and disinfectants, uh, obviously hand sanitizers because COVID, but uh, we have 
the regular fabric protectors that are virtually applicable to any fabric and can repel any, any liquid-based substance. And the goal is to, to do three different things, right? Like we, one, we offer a great product that has a great price and great functionality with our packaging, which is all custom made. Um, but in addition to that, it's, it's really this idea of protecting what you love and thereby, you know, extending the life of that item, which then saves you money or saves you money on cleaning costs. Um, and also you do that without hurting the people, pets and planet that you love as well. So the big thing that we did was we made it an overarching statement to be completely PFAS free. So floral chemical free in all of our coatings, which is, we're the only protective coatings company in the world that's making such bold claims. And that, and that's where our patents came in. We later filed for patents after, after Shark Tank and so on and so forth. And so um, now there's, you know, the fabric repellents and the other coatings I mentioned, but we also, the biggest side of our business actually our B2B side of the business where we deal with manufacturers, either textile companies, um, upholstery companies, carpet cleaning companies. Um, think of like essentially a scotch guard without giving you cancer. That's what our main products do, but our core technology stays the same applied versus, you know, all of our products. And there are products that we're working on, for example, we're working on coatings for food container packaging. Uh, so for example, McDonald's has made the bold statement that by 20, I think 24 or 25, uh, they will have zero PFAS chemicals in their cardboard packaging. Uh, and I know Chipotle is on the same kind of wavelength, which is a great statement to make because these floral chemicals are carcinogenic and they, and they cause birth defects, they're very harmful. Um, but the reality is there's no one in the industry doing this. There's no one that makes PFAS free coatings for this application, except for us. We're kind of the, the first ones to the game and, and we're trying to make it, we're, we're trying to be ahead of the curve here. We're, we're creating all types of coatings, anti-fog coatings for glasses, you know, water repellents for, for windshields. Like I said, this PFAS free food coating, um, you name it. I mean, that's the beauty of having everything in house. How big can this company become? I mean, the protective coatings industry in particular is a $55 billion industry right now, um, but it's expected to grow. And, and more importantly, when you start thinking about PFAS chemicals and trying to get rid of PFAS chemicals, PFAS chemicals are in almost every single type of chemical out in the world. And every single thing that you can think of has a chemical applied to it. So that said, if we are able to start replacing things like, for example, firefighting foam, which is a massive problem with PFAS chemicals, um, I mean, that's a multi-billion dollar opportunity in and of itself. So you went into the uh, tank asking 200,000 for 20%. If, if someone wanted to give you that, does the offer still stand? Anyone would stroke a check. Yeah, yeah no, um, uh, every, everyone's buying <laughs> David Zamorin right now in Dev Chappelle. I was, I was curious. Yeah. I don't know if we, I don't think we uh, talked about this, the, the deal that we saw uh, handshaked uh, during the the airing, the deal and the relationship, uh, how has that uh, been for you and, and Detrapel with uh, Mark and Lori? Yeah, unfortunately, the deal actually fell through. Okay. Um, but the one thing that we ended up noticing or, or, or seeing is that team their teams are still responsive. They're, they're still, you know, they'll catch up once in a while with us, which is nice to hear. Uh, we did further raise money after that year. So I, we aired in early 2018. By the end of 2019, Q3, end of Q3, and then beginning of Q4, we had raised our seed round of a million bucks. Um, and we had done a pre-seed round right before Shark Tank. So um, for the amount of any person who comes to our facility here, we have a 40,000 square foot facility and 
two fully automated, fully customized, custom made um, lines because our packaging is super unique. We have a the, the world's really first declassified aerosol pressurized container that's got no propellants. Uh, typically this piston is down and what happens is there's this air chamber down here that powers this upper chamber. And as you use the product, this piston goes up. So it's a really neat product. Everything's custom made, um, you know, to fit the equipment and stuff like that. So we, we all do that. We do that all here. Um, and so the fact that we were able to do that with just a one point, you know, 1.1, 1.2 million dollars in total funding to the company's, you know, entire existence and everything else is based on operating cash flow and, and, and sales. Um, you know, we are, are in a huge, huge spot. So our, our, you know, our seed round was at a very different valuation. And then I think our next uh, potential round might be <laughs> multiple of that because we've grown tremendously since even the seed round. What's your focus, um, you know, as the leader of the business over the next 12 months? Um, well, you know, that's an, that's an ever-changing question, I think. I, you know, if you would have asked me that question maybe five months ago, four months ago, I would have told you building a team, but we've, we've rapidly grown this year. We doubled in size in 2020, um, actually more than doubled. And, um, you know, I, I think at this point, sales and overarching kind of marketing and growing the brand in general is, is my personal goal, goal for the next year. You know, you've such a interesting story. Um, what what can people learn from you? You know, you're you look at your story, your journey, your experience as an entrepreneur. What are some lessons uh, or key takeaways for the entrepreneurs listening? I think there are a few things. You know, I think the first thing is that we didn't talk about how I came up with the initial technology, but you know, if someone were to look into the story, it's pretty detailed. I was 15 years old. I knew nothing about chemistry when I came up with the product. So the fact that I was able to do it because I was able to do some research at a, at a local university um, and, and get good mentorship, I think is a testament to the fact that, you know, most people should be able to do the same thing, no problem. And, you know, there shouldn't be a really a, uh, an issue with people trying to start. And if anything, you know, the story should show that you should start as early as possible and take the leap of faith when, when you think you should um, and make sure that, you know, you kind of follow, follow your own journey and make sure that, you know, you're learning from your own mistakes. That's kind of the key thing that I have kind of incorporated is I, I, I like to reflect a lot and, and try to learn from some of the mistakes I've made. So I think, you know, starting early is starting as early as possible um, is, is a key thing. Uh, and, and don't be afraid. Like everyone thinks you either, you know, people who are not entrepreneurs think you need money to start a business and people who have money think it's too hard to start a business so you know there's always this weird dichotomy and, and position that people just think it's hard to start a business and it is it's it's incredibly hard it's the hardest thing that you will ever do but you know if you're thinking about it you have to make the leap of faith otherwise you know you might as well not even not even try you strike me as someone who was also at a very young age very curious but maybe also uh fearless yeah, I think I was naive. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly fearless and, and naive. And actually, that's my nickname here. They call me the fearless leader. Um, but but um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I was definitely curious. I'm still curious. I, you know, a good example is this weekend on Saturday, instead of being home with my wife uh, and, and our new dog, I came into work 
um, with my friend who's an electrician who does all of our electrical work. Uh, and I learned how to legitimately wire yeah, uh, some of our, you know, our multi-million dollar line of equipment was a portion of it was wired by me solely. So um, for no benefit other than the fact that I'm, I was curious to learn how to do electrical connections. That's literally the only thing. So I spent, you know, you know 10 hours on a Saturday um, until 9.30 p.m. Just, just doing that. And again, literally no benefit. Some would argue it's a waste of time and that I have better things to do and uh, better ways to focus my time. But that's what was relaxing to me. That's how I cool off is, is learning a new skill. And so I, that's something that I've been wanting to learn for a while. And I think that's a good example of the curiosity that I personally have. And not everyone has to have that kind of curiosity, but that's just me. But certainly uh, there was definitely a component of fearlessness <laughs> uh, when I was starting off. Um, but more so, I think it's because I understood that I had nothing to lose. I was 15 years old, yeah. right? Like I, I didn't have a family. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a car. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't have like my own family. I obviously had my parents and, and, right. my, and my brothers and whatnot. Um, but I didn't have a, a family to care for that was depending on my financial situation. So that's kind of what I realized. And I realized that for even if right now, if I was starting a new business, if I, if I did have a job or somehow had to leave here, um, you know, I'd do the same thing. I wouldn't even think twice. So it's safe to say that uh, David wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And I think you and I didn't come from wealthy families. Is there something that in us that that little lever goes off in our head and we say, well, there's only one direction we can go, which is up. Um, and there really is nothing to lose. How much of that uh, exists in us that aren't born on the other side of the tracks. For sure. It's uh, incredible. Well, great story. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm, I'm blown away by everything that you've been able to do. I would say at a young age, but at any age. Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing too, is I, I just love the fact that this happened so quickly. I mean, you know, you aired a few years ago and we, you know, we don't know. I mean, we do a little bit of research, but we really like to watch that pitch <laughs> and then ask the, the curious questions so that we can, you know, everyone listening can get the update, but man, you've, you've done a hell of a lot in three years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy journey. That's for sure. So the folks that want to buy one of your products or at least see the whole line now, and it may trigger them to go, Hey, I need this for my car or for my couch or whatever it might be. Where can they find the product? And then also where can they follow you in the business on social media? The easiest way to buy the product is either our website or Amazon. Um, there are a few retailers, uh, national retailers that carry the product, but um, you know, that's, I, I would say that's the easiest way. And sooner than later, we're going to have a store lo locator on our website. Um, aside from that, fo follow us. All of our social tags are at Detrapel. My social tags are at David Zamar and my full name. So uh, we're pretty easy to find if you're, if you're looking. Awesome. Well, this was a lot of fun. I, you know, we're, we're so excited to, to hear about your success and what's transpired over the past few years. And um, I'm sure it's only the beginning of, of even bigger things to come. So we look forward to, to following along and uh, really appreciate your time today, David. Thank you. And likewise. All right, we're back for the post game. As always, Joe, lead us off. There are two things I want to make note of. And first is he had incredible clarity of where he wanted to take 
his brand. And that doesn't always happen. <laughs> but when you do have clarity of where you want to go, you could get there faster. Um, there are, you know, less, uh, there are less zigs and zags on your road uh, to growing the brand. But he had some incredible, incredible clarity. And I thought that was really cool. And it didn't. And I think his clarity came from the fact that he really thought through what he wants to do with his product, where he wants to take the company. So clear vision on the brand. The clearer you could get that vision, the earlier in, your, in, in the lifespan of your venture, the better. The second thing is he impressed me as being a real lifetime learner. Yep. And we use that term a lot. And I think that's so important, Tom, because things can change in your business, in the industry you're in, in the economic cycles on a dime. Things can change very, very quickly as we've seen play out over the last year or two. So being a lifetime learner also means you're just very, very open. You're very vulnerable. You listen to your clients. You listen to uh, stakeholders internally, partners externally. You're just extremely open. And uh, the author of the book, Atau, which was written 2,000 years before the life of Christ, said, the farther you travel, the less you know. And that's true with us as well. The farther we travel in our primary business, the less we know. And I think that's a good thing. It sounds negative, but it's actually a very positive thing because it sets you on a path and a trajectory to be very, very open to what could be a better way, a better mousetrap inside of your business. We often say inside of every business, there is a better business. You just have to find it. Yep. He self-taught himself chemistry. Yeah. And how to develop a product at 15 years old. Wild. So what's your excuse to get started, right? I, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, get started. Just if, if you have an idea, uh, if you're an aspiring entrepreneur, just make it happen. Um, you know, he also said everyone thinks you need money to start a business. You really don't. Um, can money help? Sure. In certain areas, do you need to have money to develop things? Yes. But there are plenty of businesses you can start from scratch. You can make something in your kitchen. You can code some software. How many uh, Shark Tank entrepreneurs have we talked to that literally started in their kitchen or garage? I mean, it's got to be a third to a half of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With just bootstrapping it. Yep. I, yeah. I'd say probably half have bootstrapped, start in the garage or the kitchen or the bedroom or wherever they started the business. But yeah, absolutely. So... And, and frankly, it also, I think it's a better story to tell. But then when you go into Shark Tank and you say, yeah, I own 100% of the business and it was all me and I bootstrapped it, I think it's a lot easier to get a shark than if you say, well, I have some other investors and I own 43.8% of the company and I'm asking you for a different valuation. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with bootstrapping as long as possible. We, we, sh we won't use any names. We probably shouldn't even mention this, but we have a mutual friend who owns a business who keeps sending us an email email asking for money. I think he's on his fourth raise. And he's not in the black. The company's not in the black. They're they're not profitable. What's going on here? So we love the bootstrapping stuff. Yeah, and I just I mean I, I don't I I think I'd be a lot more likely to invest in a company that says, yeah, we bootstrapped up to this point and now we need to throw some rocket fuel on it versus, hey, we've got this concept and we're burning money and we need more money to, you know, try and fix. I mean, it's just right. it, the story. And when you're there, when you're saying that and you have the right investor in front of you, you better tell them exactly him or her exactly what you're going to do with the money. Yeah. 
Well, it's also, too, you wonder, hey, you're existing investors. If this is such a no-brainer, why wouldn't they just throw in more money? <laughs> right? Why, do you, why are you soliciting new people? I mean, if, you're, if you feel great about the company and you're already in for 100000 why wouldn't you throw in another 100000 if you truly believed in it and take over a bigger chunk? Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's interesting. Uh, I wrote down a question, Joe, and my question was your team. Okay, your leadership team, your employees, are they more important when you don't have a co-founder? You know, you and I can kick ideas around. We can, you know, BS. We can tackle the whiteboard. We can strategize. I mean, obviously, there's tremendous value in, you know, our, those brainstorming sessions that you and I do. But imagine if you don't have a co-founder. I would argue that your team, the people that work for you, are, are even more important because you do need them to be a sounding board, to kick ideas around from, to think strategically about the business. Agree or disagree? I, I completely agree. And obviously, in many of these younger businesses that are, you know, uh, they're in their first year, two years, three years of, um, of space, those employees, those key employees, better be entrepreneurial in and of themselves. And we've seen many, uh, we've talked to many entrepreneurs who said, that's who I hire. I hire people that think and act and solve problems just like I do. So I think it's critical that if you don't have a co-founder, you surround yourself with the most entrepreneurial <laughs> employees you could you could find and uh, attract the organization. And then also look at peer advisory or mastermind groups as well. Yep. Well, that's it. Uh, you know, I, I think he's a great entrepreneur. Yeah. I think there's a lot of really interesting lessons here, really great story. Um, this was a lot of fun. And uh, like we mentioned earlier, if you want to check out our book, Entrepreneurial Landmines, uh, we did not write it to um, become uh, profitable. We wrote it to share some really important things. And so, so we're not going to make any money off of the we're book? We're not, no. And it was a bait and switch. <laughs> I didn't tell you that, but that was the whole plan all along. Um, yeah, we just, if you uh, want a PDF copy of it or a Kindle copy of it, you can email us, Tom at growth10.com, Joe at growth10.com. And if you just want to listen to the audio version, which I think is the easiest thing to do, um, just go back in this feed a few weeks back and it'll be in there and, and you can download it and listen to it. And I will tell you that doing the audio for a book is not fun. No, I'm glad I'm, you did I'm the it. voiceover. I'm it glad is, you did it. <laughs> it was a it was a grind um, to 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 read out a book. Uh, so you know you kind of had to stop and start. But my voice would go. I'd be like, I got to finish the next day. So. I, I couldn't do it because I I actually hate hearing my own voice. So I, I, I couldn't hate, do it. I hate hearing you're, it too. Oh come on! Oh, that's not nice. Oh, I'm you're just so kidding. mean. No, I love your Tom voice. is so mean. I love your voice. <laughs> what were you gonna say? That's it, man. It's just, you know, we're here, uh, Joe at Growth10.com, Tom at Growth10.com. Reach out, say hi if you're interested in being in a peer group or starting a peer group. We help uh, we help with both ends of that equation. So We do. We're excited. So we'll see you when? Next Tuesday? Next Tuesday. <laughs> All new episode of Outside the Tank.